Welcome to the Optimal Performance Guide, where we have conversations with high-level humans to provide clear guidance to the mindset and habits required for optimal performance. I'm your host, Rory Cordial. Okay, guys, today we sit down with my good friend, James Blake. James is a former professional tennis player with a career-high ranking of four in the world. I'm excited for you to meet James because he's one of my favorite people on this planet. In this episode, we explore the concept of mastery. James shares his own journey to mastery in the sport of tennis and the extreme level of commitment and discipline required to get there. This hour flew by for me. I was left inspired by James' strong passion to be great, as well as his gratitude and perspective on life. I hope you find this episode inspiring and enjoyable. Thank you, as always, for listening and the support. Okay, guys, enough talking. Let's get to the show. James, thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure. So for the listeners, this, this is super special for me to, to be talking to you, I think, just to share how you see the world. So for James, I had the opportunity to travel with you for a, you know, a number of years during your career playing tennis, and we spent a lot of time together <laughs> uh, <laughs> as far as like, yes. <laughs> the tennis is in and out of cities, and so we'd be you know gone and back. James was based out of Tampa, so we would be into Tampa, training, staying in the same house, traveling together. It's just, so we got to know each other pretty well over the years. And uh, I must say, I think everyone that knows James would just say, great guy, I think is like the first thing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I I appreciate that. But yeah, we, uh, we did get to spend a lot of time together. Um, And it was, it was awesome for me too. And I'm, I'm glad, uh, I got to see your, uh, I mean, people that know you obviously would say the same thing about you being a great guy, but I got to see how great a guy you were at the start and how much you changed throughout the time we did work together and all the while maintaining the fact that you were an amazing guy. We may have changed your wardrobe a little bit uh, from when you started uh, showing up uh, in Tampa with the jorts, but other than that, you know, you kept your your core personality as being an amazing human being. Thanks, sir. Um, I wanted to get, since, you know, there's not that many of us in our lifetime get to reach a level of mastery and just depth that you were able to reach in tennis. And I just think that's, you know, it's kind of fascinating. And I think there's so much lessons and values and wisdoms just from you pushing your body and mind to the realms that you did for so many years. I just don't think many people really understand the load, the level of discipline and work ethic and just how far you push. So I would love to kind of get into this concept of road to mastery. Yeah. Just just to hear from your viewpoint today, but also looking back like as a kid even just, you know, when did you start playing tennis and why, and maybe kind of how it became so important and grew with you? 
Yeah. I mean, there's so many things to, to talk about with all of that because yeah, I mean, first things first is yeah, it takes, it takes um, a level of commitment to get that kind of mastery for anyone. That's why, why anyone asks me what's the first thing that I should tell my kids or what's the first thing for, if I want them to do it is they have to love it because to do, I mean, you were, you were there kind of behind the curtains to see everything and you have to see how much sacrifice is there and then their sacrifice when you're young their sacrifice as you're going through it their sacrifice when you're starting on tour their sacrifice when you're at the top of the tour their sacrifice throughout the whole way and if you don't love what you're doing and want to get better at it it's in my opinion it's pretty much impossible to to achieve that level of success without really loving it um and loving you sorry to interrupt you but what What do you mean by sacrifice? So sacrifice, yeah, actually that's a good question because I always thought, you know, sacrifice is you're doing something and giving up on a lot of other things that you might want to be doing. And so for so many people that did say, I use that word and I actually probably shouldn't use it because I always thought about when people said all the sacrifices you make, all the, you know, friends' birthday parties you missed, all the friends' weddings you missed, all the parties you missed in college, all the things that you missed out on but it was what I wanted to be doing. So I never thought of it totally as sacrificing because I wanted to find out how good I could be at tennis. I wanted to find out what the absolute peak was. I didn't want to go out there and say, well, I could have done better if I had just, um, if I had tried a little harder, if I had put in a little more effort, if I hadn't, um, if I hadn't gone and partied and done this, or if I hadn't gone and, you know, taken time off and just, you know, joked around with my friends or done and, and I never wanted that because that would have eaten me up. Right now, I'd be I'd be talking to you as a different person. I'd, then I may actually have some regrets. Right now, I don't have any because I, you know, quote unquote, sacrificed to be as good a tennis player as I could be, and that was what I wanted to see. And I know now that it's not necessarily the normal path a lot of people take because for me, that was what I wanted to do when I was a kid. That was what I was. Um, I always just wanted to get better and see how good I could be. And I realize now how many people that that isn't normal to to, to do all the things that I did to be better at tennis and wanting to um, wanting to improve every single day and figuring out ways to get better and doing the little things um, like getting up before school and playing or getting up before school to go for extra runs or doing extra time in the gym or doing everything I did um, to get better. I realized that's not as normal, <laughs> but I, it was for me, it was normal. It was what I loved doing and what I wanted to do. I always wanted to compete. I always wanted to be better. And Um, and so I, I know it takes a certain kind of person to get to to the level I got to, or the level that even, even above where I got to. And, um, I think about it now and I think about how different it was at that time, because I I absolutely would have done everything for, for tennis to be, to be better. I wanted to, I mean, you saw it behind the scenes when if someone challenged me, I'm going to, I'm going to try to meet that challenge. I'm not going to leave anything out there. I'm going to, I'll put myself in the hospital before I, uh, before I quit or or stop doing something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I, I wanted to be better. And I, and that's because I loved, I loved the sport and I loved it from a very young age. I loved the individual aspect of it. Both my parents played for fun and I just loved the feeling of being out there and doing it on your own problem solving on your own, um, knowing that you put in the time to practice and get better and and sort of earning victories. I, I loved that feeling. So you played with a one-handed backhand and you were, mm-hmm. you were a little smaller than uh, when you were younger, right? Um, yeah. Why did you choose a one versus two? Cause maybe <laughs> that, <laughs> just talk about that maybe. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm stubborn as, as you know, as my <laughs> wife knows very, very well, I'm stubborn. And when my brother who's three years older than me 
switched to a one-handed backhand. He was about 12 or 13 years old and he was much bigger, tall. He was a very tall kid from, from young and he had a lot more strength. And so they switched him around 12 or 13. And I was just kind of just starting to take tennis lessons at that time. So he must've been older. He must've been 14. Cause I was like around 11 or so. And, uh, they said, no, James, you're not, you know, you're not strong enough. You wouldn't be able to do it. You can't, you know, you can't switch like Thomas can. And of course I took that as now I have to, um, and I'm <laughs> going to do it and I'm going to be really good at it. Um, so I switched when I was way too weak and way too young and not definitely not strong enough to, to be able to hit one, to hit one hand back. And I joked that it actually ended up working out in my favor because at that age, I was still so competitive. I still wanted to win, even though my backhand was horrible. So I just had to keep developing my forehand and getting that better and better so that I could uh, sort of avoid hitting backhands. And that ended up being sort of my strength on tour was my forehand. So it came from the fact that I had to make it better if I wanted to still win any tennis matches. So I, um, I worked on my forehand nonstop too. Cause you wanted to win so bad and you adapted to win and obviously super stubborn and, uh, mm -hmm. took that challenge to, to take on the backhand as a kid why did you want to win so bad or you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, and Thomas, I just, your brother's name's Thomas and he is an awesome guy yeah. and great athlete yeah. himself. Yeah. Did like, did he have that same just fire to win or was that, uh, just in you? Do you feel like it was not taught? I mean, I think a lot of people like to win and I think my brother liked to win. Uh, for me, I felt like I pretty much needed to win. Um, I, I definitely feel like there was a difference. And, um, my brother has tons of talent as well. And he won plenty. He won a lot. He won some really tough, hard fought matches. He played tennis as well. He was all American Harvard, um, great player. But for me, I, if I lost, I then wanted to go out and run and practice and do everything I could that much harder and keep working harder and wanting to, to do everything I could to win. And no, it wasn't just in tennis. So that's why I think it was just the way I am. Um, as I got older, I realized that's just something in me where we got a ping pong table for Christmas one year and my brother was just naturally much better than me. And he would beat me, he would beat me. And then I learned that I could turn one of the uh, sides of the table up and make it at, like I'm hitting against the wall. So I did that day and night. I kept doing it. It's in our basement, just practicing on the, on the wall, just hitting over and over and over until I beat my brother. Um, and he couldn't believe it that I did that, but I, that's the kind of person that I was, that I was going to find any way to practice and get better and do what I can to win. And I don't know where it came from. Um, cause I don't think either of my parents are like that. Um, but I felt like I wanted to win everything I did. And I've, my wife laughs about it cause she can't understand it either, but I say that I've gotten better and she laughs. She's like, no, you're still unbelievably competitive. And for me, I feel like I took a, a back seat cause I'm not like I was when I was a kid where I could not take losing. I had to, I, I would throw a fit. I wanted to win everything, every single, I mean, my coach could tell uh, I'm sure a million stories about just losing little games in practice. Um, and me being pissed for the entire rest of the, the day cause I wanted to win every single one of them. <laughs> yeah. And as a father now, would you say, how would you approach that if your daughters had that same well, thing? Cause it, yeah. it's so tricky, huh? Cause it's it, uh, almost a requirement to get to the level you got to, but it's like, 
it's it's very tricky and i'm telling you as a parent i'm learning because i still I, i'm now very very um compassionate to my parents for what they went through because my older daughter is very similar and she i mean i had to deal with just the other day her basically bursting into tears because she dropped one spot in the club she was eight years old and she dropped in typing club because i guess their their class has a a ranking system of whoever's typing or whatever and she was and she actually she's aware enough to know that um my wife and i were talking to her like it's okay it's you know just go out and practice it's no big deal you can keep practicing it's fine um and she's in tears and she's like it's dad's fault i get it from him <laughs> and i, and I <laughs> act up laughing because i'm like yeah you did because that's because that's for sure where you got it from and i need to try to figure out how to deal with it because my parents just you know they i'm sure they were pulling their hair out and not knowing what to do because every time i lost it was like it was such a big deal. And my oldest daughter, Riley, has, I think she's got that too. She wants to win. She, she wants to win when she goes to birthday parties and they do the little like sack races or they're playing soccer at those. She wants to win everything. Well, and your wife, so, Emily, is also competitive, I think, in a touch. She's stubborn. competitive, but so she's, <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And she doesn't want to admit it, but she is a little stubborn as well. And she's sneaky competitive. She's, she's, she kind of doesn't care, but then when it comes down to it, she, she still wants to win too. <laughs> that's great um yeah. at 11 you switched to the one-hander and you had coach brian barker how did he fit in with the transition from maybe like your parents coaching or helping when did brian step in or another coach as far as you know like how you how you just mentioned uh riley getting so upset dropping the spot in typing class <laughs> you know that outside person as a coach because you yeah. were on the tennis court like you know how did brian you know well, what kind of words did he give you as a kid getting so upset and kind of that that growth that you guys had brian was absolutely amazing he's a mentor and i know how lucky i am because I, I honestly don't know how my career would have gone without brian because he was that bridge from my parents just like tossing me some balls and teaching me tennis to learning the real uh fundamentals of the game and that was around 11 or 12 years old when he started uh taking over and okay. also the maturity the i mean i was a brat i was i wanted to win everything and i was angry if i lost and i was you know i, I wasn't well behaved on the court at all at that age and he sat me down and we would talk. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many lessons that I had that were 30 minute lessons and 25 of them we were talking, we were sitting talking, we weren't uh, hitting tennis balls because he needed me to know that I had to grow up basically. And he helped me so much with, um, with just learning to control my emotions a little bit better with learning to uh, be able to be, I'm still always going to be tough on myself, but using that productively instead of just being negative about any loss, like turning it into something positive. He was just, I mean, he's someone that doesn't get enough credit at all in the tennis world because he can help, in my opinion, he can help just about any player with the mental side of things. He's not necessarily a sports psychologist, but I never had a sports psychologist because I felt like Brian was just as good at being able to figure out what I was thinking and what I needed to hear when I needed to hear it. And I mean, that's just the, the luckiest thing that at 11 years old, I found someone that could guide me through uh, like my mature, my maturation process all the way to being a top pro. Um, so I was extremely lucky to have Brian lead me through that because also I, I know now as a parent, 
um, as a kid, you don't want to listen to your parents. You want someone else. And so for me, it was such a great um, departure from listening to my dad telling me, hey, stop acting like a brat or my mom telling me, hey, pick your head up or, you know, do something or doing anything on the tennis court. Having Brian as the coach to tell me that was so much more palatable than hearing it from your parents because I know now my kids think they know everything so that they think your parents don't know everything and they don't want to listen. So uh, I was happy to listen to Brian a lot more. Yeah. And uh, I mean, in Barker, we call him Barker. He's just, he's such a great guy. And, you know, it's, um, it's interesting with coaching. I wanted to ask you what you think makes a great coach, because I know from also traveling with Brian, he was very, very mindful of when he spoke, you know? So he wasn't just speaking or so, um, yeah, I'm kind of curious about your thoughts on that side. So of I, yeah, I think he did a great job with that, with knowing when to speak, because I think one of the biggest things with coaching, I think there's, um, it's almost like a, well, there's a relationship, but it's almost like a, a marriage or, or um, any sort of a relationship like that, where you've got two people that have to be compatible. And so there's not necessarily one specific person that is the best. It's the best for that other person. So there can be a coach that might be perfect for me. They might be terrible for say Andy Roddick or Marty Fish or someone else. But um, Brian was so good at knowing and adjusting to what I needed. Um, and he was one of the few coaches, in my opinion, that learned, learned or understood from, a, from very early on that what's most important is adapting to that player because it's the player that's out there that has to perform. And your job as a coach is to make them perform as well as possible, not to make yourself look better, which I think some coaches uh, tend to do. But for Brian, it was all about making sure I was uh, getting the most out of the relationship. And so I think that's partly what makes a good coach. There are some coaches that would be, you know, just talking nonstop. And some of them are great coaches, but they need a player that wants to hear constant attention, constant feedback. I mean, there, there are coaches that will every single point you play in a practice have something to say about it. And there are, co- there are players that love that. I remember um, Paul Goldstein was a good, a good friend of mine on tour and he loved having constant feedback and he was able to process all of that and then uh, be able to turn that into a positive for him. For me, I didn't like hearing that because I would obsess over almost everything Brian said because I knew he took so much time and energy to think about what he needed to say. I knew it was important when he said it. Um, So I took everything to heart. So if he said something every single point, I'd be, my head would be spinning and he knows that. So um, he did a great job. And for me, I've helped a few young players now. And every time I do, I call him, I'm like, man, why didn't you tell me this is so hard? Because to figure out those exact times when it's important to say something, or when it's important to just kind of shut your mouth and swallow your pride and say, swallow that ego a little bit and say, you know what, if I say this and if I say too much, it could actually make them worse. And my goal is to not make them worse, not necessarily make them better right now, but you're making them better by not making them worse. And that's sometimes it's very difficult to do because I mean, you want to just say everything that comes to your mind and you can't do that. And Brian did a, did a great job of that. Yeah. And you had mentioned, you know, maybe years ago though, about as far as coaching, like you just know how to hit. So as far as like teaching how to hit a a certain shot that, you know, is kind of a, a bit of a gift too. It's not necessarily 
so easy to teach to teach yeah yeah so teaching at a high level i I think i can be uh effective in coaching someone that already knows how to hit that knows the basics knows the fundamentals that knows um how to play the game but i am terrible my wife just took up tennis and trying to teach her i am not a good coach (laughs) i've passed that along i've passed that duty on to someone else um, to save my marriage and also to make her better because, uh, I have friends that that teach tennis and they said I was doing a terrible job with teaching a beginner, um, (laughs) because I can help her once she's, you know, maybe five years into the process and she already kind of knows the basics. Um, so I was lucky to have someone like Brian who naturally actually can coach beginners all the way through a top player in the world. So he's, uh, he was good at that. I'm not, I, I think I can, I picked up so much from him that I think I could be effective with helping someone that's already kind of got the, all the basics down. Um, and then I could, then I could take over and pick up the baton. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I was just thinking of at the, the level of expertise that you got in tennis, you can map your body to, you know, you can see something and just kind of do it. Um, yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting because sometimes in tennis, like a Djokovic or someone will will mock another player just for fun, you know, uh, where they imitate a serve or something, mm-hmm. you know, when they're mic'd up, when you guys are mic'd up. It, it's funny because I, I was amazed at how good people are at mock at copying <laughs> other, you know what I mean? But then I yeah. started to realize like that's actually because they're so good. You're so embodied at that the level that you're at that you're able to just map your body to anyone, which is yeah, incredible. It's, it, yeah. And I think a lot of it is, um, you spend so much time on the tennis court. I mean, I'm now out on the tennis court with my kids once in a while and stuff, and they'll be amazed at like some of the little things that you can do. And you are like, how do you do that? And then you start realizing like how much time in my life I spent on the court that you pick up so many of these things. And then, yeah, I used to imitate, um, a couple people with their serves and, just for fun. And you want to see kind of if it, I mean, part of it is a little bit of trial and error. Like you're imitating someone that's a great server. Well, maybe they, there is something to the way their, their body's moving to their motion, to what they're doing, or it's just unique more to them. And you you kind of mess around with it and see, and that's part of a lot of people's process is trial and error. But then, yeah, you're, you've been, you've been on the court so long and you've watched so much tennis, you've been out there so much and you've played so much that it comes easy to move the way, you know, you need to move on the tennis court. And, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, Djokovic is pretty darn good. And a lot of the imitations, some people are better than others. And, um, Andy used to do great imitations of me. That's hilarious. I tried to do his serve and, you know, make fun of him, but it's, um, yeah, we, I mean, we, we, we just spent so much time on the court that we get very comfortable at doing just about anything out there. Yeah. That's actually interesting. So did, when you were playing, and developing, did you ever kind of map yourself to a certain player or a certain forehand and kind of try it out on your body? So that was why I was really lucky as well with Brian is that he didn't, there's some coaches that I think try to turn everyone into the next Sampras, everyone into the next Agassi, everyone into the next Roddick. I never had my coach do that. He never necessarily felt like I should be someone that I wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. I loved watching certain players. And I definitely for a little while tried to do um, actually Jim Courier's serve, which wouldn't be the thing that most people would pick out about him. But I just kind of thought his motion was pretty cool. So mm-hmm. I tried that. It didn't work as well for me. Um, but my strokes were just, the, I think my strokes were built out of necessity. I had a very short backswing on my forehand. And I grew up playing on really fast indoor hard courts a lot. 
And um, I think that was the reason that it just developed that way. Um, and I actually didn't even realize how short of a backswing it was until the first time I saw myself play on TV because people had made fun of me for it before. And I right. just thought, oh, they're just, you know, they're just goofing around. Everyone, you know, was just looking for something to make fun of me. And then I saw it on TV and I was like, oh my goodness, I look, I look different than a lot of these other players. And I didn't realize <laughs> that. Um, and it's, it's just, there's an awareness of your body, but there's not uh, an awareness for me. There wasn't an awareness visually of what yeah. I was, what I, uh, what I was doing. So it was, um, so I think my strokes just developed more out of necessity than out of um, mimicking someone else. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And you had mentioned early that um, your forehand was a pretty good shot of yours. How, <laughs> yeah. When did you know that was such a weapon? And when did you just know that you were getting pretty good at tennis? Like where, um, that was another thing I was thinking with Barker. He's so when you talk to Barker, I, I hope to have Barker on the show just for people to get great. to know him because yeah. I'll tell you what, you just feel good after talking yeah, to Barker. Definitely. To, and, and, and the time yeah. goes so quick. He's uh, he'll have you on the phone for like an hour and you didn't even realize it. You thought you were going to talk to him for five minutes. <laughs> yeah. So when Brian knew you were getting pretty good, where possibly I'm, well, actually, did you think like, well, I want to be pro, like I'm going to be pro or cause I know you went I to was, Harvard or was yeah. that even in your mind? So for me, it was so much later than most people. I think a lot of people, when they want to be a pro tennis player, they think by the time they're 10 years old, that's going to be their goal. They're going to be a pro mm -hmm. tennis player. They want to turn pro when they're 16 years old. They want to go right on tour. They don't even want to go to college, all that kind of stuff. I had really no idea and didn't believe that at all. Partly because I was so little and kind of scrawny and weak and had a one-handed backhand that I needed to kind of <laughs> develop um, throughout the years. So I wasn't this huge prospect. Um, USTA didn't know much about me. Uh, none of the scouts or, you know, any of the college coaches or probably didn't know me until probably around 16 years old when I finally kind of hit a growth spurt. Um, and then I started getting a lot better, but for me, I didn't realize how much better I had gotten at that time. Um, because I went from being kind of barely making national tournaments, which is usually about the top hundred or so in the country to two years later, I was number one in the country. Um, in the 18 and unders and it just happened so fast and all i was doing was just i think i was playing the same but i was getting bigger and stronger um and the game was being more effective and i was trying to have the right attitude I was learning from brian and at that point my brother like i said was three years older than me he was away in college i still looked up to him as he's three years older he's bigger he's stronger he's way better than me so i still was just trying to get better to see if i could play on the same college team as him not to be better not to be pro not to anything like that and I just kept winning a lot of matches and then USTA started taking notice and then they started, they gave me a wild card in the junior U S open. And then there were agents around talking to me about turning pro right away. And I was basically laughing at them. Like I have no, like these guys are pros They're, you know, I thought pros were like robots. They were so much better. There's no way I could ever compete with them at that age. That was when I was like 17 ish. Then I went off to college and I thought I was going to play number three or four on the college team. And the first college rankings came out and I think I was either three or four in the country. And I couldn't believe it because I didn't realize sort of how much better I'd gotten. And then at that point, that's when I started realizing, wait a minute, I'm, I'm one of these top players in, in the country in college and I'm only a freshman. And, I, and then I started playing that summer was the first time I played some pro events. And I started realizing, wait a minute, I could, I'm not as far away from these people as I thought I was, uh, these people yeah. that are doing this for a living. And that's when I started realizing, all right, I can, there's a, just a few things I could hopefully iron out and continue getting bigger and stronger and more experienced. And 
I think I could actually do this. I think I can compete. So after that freshman year of mine in college is when I knew I actually had a chance to do this. And then I, I really put my head down. That's when I sort of made a, an even more, even more of a commitment. I feel like I, I, I gradually got more and more committed to this being a possibility because in high school, I was just doing my best to, to play well and maybe play in college. Once I realized I had this chance, then I said, okay, my sophomore year in college now is when I'm going to really commit. And I'm going to say, I'm going to do everything I can to be a pro, which meant taking one less class um, at Harvard, but putting in as much time as I could to the tennis. And if I felt like I couldn't improve anymore after that year um, in college, that's when I need to turn pro. If I'm still sort of hit a plateau or hit a ceiling and I feel like I'm not getting to that point, not improving at the same level, then I'm going to stay in college. I'm going to go for four years and I'm going to get a Harvard degree and see what happens after that. So I wasn't going to go for three. So after that second year was when I knew I was going to, I was going to turn pro or I was going to stay in college for four years. Well, I think that's amazing how you described that just your thought process. Cause did everyone around you like Thomas and your parents and Brian, did everyone kind of just discover along with you that, wow, James could actually go pro or do you think like <laughs> they, they kind of knew that you had this talent or cause it sounds like it no. just kind of, <laughs> yeah, I don't know when everyone kind of knew, I think, if I had to guess, I bet Tom, I bet my brother knew first because he was around me as so much, and he was around me while I was playing, and he was around me to see my attitude, my work ethic. He was around me to see the ability there, and I bet he knew. Probably, it'd be an interesting question. I'd, I'd love to ask him because I probably didn't have any of those. Like my first sort of you know aha moment or whatever was when I got a wild card into the U.S. Open qualifying, and I was the first ever pro match I had played. I didn't know anything about pro tennis. And I took a set off of a guy that was ranked 100 and, I don't know, 140 in the world or something. And I almost beat him. I came very close to beating him. And I realized, wait a minute, I, I could actually possibly do this. And um, that was pretty late in the game to be even thinking about turning pro. So um, I think I was late, but I bet my brother knew before that because he had seen, he had probably started seeing improvement in me. And he knew that level because he had been playing college tennis for, for three years at that point. So, um, but my parents, I don't, I think they were, we're all, we were all such rookies to the pro tennis scene because my parents just played casually for fun. They had never known any real pro tennis players. They didn't know anything about it. So we were all kind of learning, um, as we went. So I don't know when they knew, I know my dad was, uh, was taken aback when some agents started coming around because he was very much, both my parents preached academics, um, more than athletics and so yeah. when he heard agents coming around he was uh he was not happy <laughs> he wanted me getting my degree <laughs> he wanted me going to college and so he was pretty um pretty prickly to the uh, to the agents when they first started coming around making sure they knew that he was still the boss and they needed to go through him <laughs> prickly james always says yeah. great words <laughs> <laughs> that one come on that one's not a problem know, not that's very basic word. but it's yeah. still that's a good one <laughs> <laughs> i'll have to bring emily i'll bring my wife out for when there's uh if there's a questionable one she's our she's our uh mediator when we don't know if a word is is, is a harvard word or if it's if it should be basic for everyone to know you're laughing because I'm a terrible speller and maybe my vocab isn't as great. Like James's mom is also this amazing English. Uh, she loves English. And does she have her master's or definitely her, her degree? She, no, she, uh, just English literature. That was her major in college. 
Yeah, but so James can spell everything and also does math, like incredible math and just instantly in the mind. So we joke about that being Harvard. So that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> but that that's interesting with uh, the emphasis on, you know, academics. So that sophomore year, did you make that decision to, because you said, you know, you were going to really commit to make pro yeah. And then see if it works. Because that's kind of how, from since I've known you, how you approach things. It's like, well, I'm going to give it all. And, yeah. and if I can do this or not, like you don't, it's, it's kind of that uh, on off black or white, like I'm going to go all <laughs> the way, uh, yeah. which I, I, I think is the reason, you know, you were able to be so good. Um, but yeah, so I'm curious, did you, was that yeah. just from you? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, like you said, I've, I felt like I needed to be that way because I, I'm not, um, I don't think I had the same kind of capabilities of some athletes that go out there and can do things just straight naturally. Like I do think I'm a good athlete. Um, but I don't think I can do this without the hard work. I needed that preparation. I needed all that. So for me to do it that sophomore year and to make that decision, I loved college. I loved college tennis. I loved, uh, the social aspect. I, I loved the academics, but like you said, I, uh, for, for me, a lot of times I have to be black and white. I have to be all in on something. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to see if my all in was good enough because I felt like if I kind of go halfway, uh, I can still be a co good college player and I can still mm -hmm. get good grades and I can still do a lot of the things I want to do, but I really want to see how good I can be. And, so for me to do that, I need to be fully, uh, immersed in my tennis. And that means, you know, back to the sacrificing again, that means I'm not going out partying, uh, as much. That means I'm not, um, you know, I'm getting up early and I'm, I'm doing extra runs. I'm not doing the stuff where some of the guys on the team that don't have the same goals are kind of rushing through their gym session and just getting to the end of it. Whereas no, I'm doing extra and then I'm doing extra sprints and I'm, pulling some of the guys that are at the bottom of the lineup to just come hit me serve so I can hit returns. I'm doing a little extra stuff. And so I had to do that to see where I could get to. Um, and that was a decision. Yeah, that was a decision I made. Cause I felt like, okay, if I do this for a year and I don't feel like I'm getting any better, I don't feel like there's much there. Well, you know what, then I can go back to being kind of all in on the academics and say, you know what, I want to focus on, I'm at the greatest, you know, I'm a little biased, but the best Institute, best uh, college in the world. I want to stay yeah. here and get as much as I can out of that and, um, and then do that for the next two years and, and see what I can learn and what I can gain, um, from this experience and still be a, a good college tennis player. I still think I would have been good, but I wouldn't have mm -hmm. been great because I wouldn't have had the same preparation that I, I put into that sophomore year. Yeah. The preparations is really interesting to me. How did you know what to do? It sounds like it's just intuitively <laughs> like you knew hard work. And uh, yeah. that's also something anyone that knows James is going to say. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I write uh, discipline and hard work <laughs> and yeah. follow through. I mean, that's a, a great quality I really admire about you is because you ask James to do anything and it's done. There's no, and that's just an <laughs> yeah. incredible quality, you know? So for me, it was, it was learning. And that was, that was what I had. That was all I had to go on was the fact that I knew how to work hard. And sometimes yeah. it was just, it was my own stuff. It was me in my room doing push-ups. It was me hanging on a little door jam doing pull-ups. It was me doing that extra stuff that I wanted to do. It was going out for runs. It was the, you know, the same kind of stuff that you, 
um, that you think of when you think of putting in the hard work. It was when it's snowing in Boston, still putting on boots and going out for a run or, um, or doing what you need to do. Um, just to get in better shape. I didn't have, we asked, um, the trainers there who were more like football strength training and conditioning coaches to put together a program for me. They did and not to take anything away from them, but they weren't tennis specific probably. So I was just doing the best I could with what I had. And yeah. it also in the back of my mind helped me to know that, Hey, there is probably a way to continue getting better. If I, if I do take that next step and get to the next level and you get a tennis specific trainer, you get someone that can help you with some of these drills that aren't necessarily perfectly matched to what you need to do on the court and your nutrition can take a step up. And for me at that time, I didn't know, I barely knew anything about nutrition. So it was just, um, you know, try to eat healthy, try to eat, you know, a lot more, eat more chicken than, than beef, eat, you know, a little bit, you know, less sugar. Don't drink just straight Gatorade, you know, put some, you know, get some of the electrolyte drinks that, you know, do things like that. But I was going, I was winging it. I mean, so I, I was, <laughs> I was just doing everything I could to get better, but I knew there was probably, this wasn't as professional as a guy that's in the top hundred in the world. I knew I, I couldn't do that because I didn't have the resources. I didn't have the ability to go hire a trainer. Um, I didn't have the ability to talk to a nutritionist really. So I was doing the best I could with what I had. Well, because I can hear the fire and drive and, and forward movement in your voice right now. Yeah. So it's, uh, and it makes me think of, you know, there's this thing that I feel like all of us meet at some point when you're pushing to do something great, you can be afraid to fail or even exceed. Oh, there's yeah. kind of this teeter point, but it seems that that wasn't on your radar at all. Uh, was it at any, any point or it just really, it sounds like there's a lot of like, yeah, I'm no, moving I, forward strong and not thinking yeah. about going backwards. And and I see so many people that are afraid to fail and they don't know what to call it. And they, I think it's an excuse for a lot of people or they, or they come up with an excuse as opposed to being, as opposed to just admitting that they're afraid to fail because a hundred percent, I was putting myself out there because I was going to do this. I was going to go all out. And if I failed, I was going to fail knowing I did the best that I absolutely could and then be comfortable with that. And then say, you know what? I worked my absolute tail off. I did everything I could in my own power to get to uh, as good a tennis player as I could be. And I just maxed out at being three in the country in college and that's it, whatever, you know, that's where I, that's, if that's the case, then I will be able to sleep easy at night and know that I did the best that I could. And so many people I think are afraid of, that kind of a result because in their head they might have well i want to be a top 100 player i want to be a top 10 player in the world whatever it is that they set that goal if they feel mm -hmm. like they set that kind of an external goal and they don't meet it they don't meet that goal that's gonna set them back in life with regrets with feeling like they're failure and i never had that and i know when i did countless interviews and they asked what your goal is are you, are you happy with the ranking are you not happy or whatever like I gave them the most frustrating answer for them every time because it was truthful, but it was my goal is to put my rackets down at the end of my career and know that I did my best and have no regrets. And I said that answer so many times. Um, and I'm sure it was annoying. Oh, well, do you, no, but that was a bad loss or, but that was a really big win. What do you think about? Well, yeah, I did well today or I did poorly today, but I did my best in terms of the preparation. And so I didn't have that fear of, failure because failure to me was different than not getting ranked higher or than losing or, or 
losing too many matches or something like that. It was as long as I did my best, I am not a failure. I put in everything I had into this. And I see so many people that are like, well, it's an excuse of like, well, I, I could have worked harder, but I just, you know, I didn't feel like it today. And I was, you know, I just wanted to go out with my friends and, and not really do this. And I had too much schoolwork or something like that. Like, I didn't want to have that as an excuse. I didn't want to give myself any out. I just did the best that I could. And that to me is, is someone that's, like you said, there's, there's so many people that are scared to fail or whatever that I didn't want to have that as an excuse. I just, I just didn't, I didn't equate that to failure. Failure to me is the, the ones that kind of half-assed it and didn't, didn't really go after it um, ever and didn't have that, uh, you know, and that's not to say that I shouldn't say that they're failures, that that would have been failure for me. For a lot of people, yeah. that's the way they, you know, they're comfortable and um, they have different, I mean, I realized I'm not normal in the way that I went about it. And so other people have different ways of making themselves happy, of uh, getting the most out of their lives. But for me, I saw failure as not putting in every bit, every ounce of effort into being the best tennis player I could be. That's admirable because I felt that with the years working with you, just like the ability that you can really lean in with. I think that's what I said at the very beginning, just like how you can really lean into your body and mind at such a, such a level that it's hard to, it's hard to understand unless you're like there day in, day out, like experiencing it. You know what I mean? So you're really putting words to it. So I feel like the listeners can start to start to uh, hear what I was trying to get across. Yeah, and but you, And you saw, you saw it. I want, yeah. You saw it there day to day. And I think that's one thing that, uh, I mean, I feel lucky that I had you there day to day, but I think it's important for people if they get the opportunity, so many people can see an athlete and they'll see them on their match day or on their game day or something. And back, like, wow, that's impressive what they did. And then they don't think about every single day that led up to that. Even my wife, when she first started, uh, when we first started dating, I was on tour and she, um, she came to practice a few times and she'd see me there or she would be in the gym at the same time. And she, she was in great shape then she's still in great shape. And she was talking about like, well, one day she's going to, you know, do the same workout as me. And she would. And then the next day she was sore and she didn't want to do it again. And I'm going right back to doing it again. And she's like, I don't think people realize the difference in doing something one day as opposed to doing it every single day. And what kind of shape you have to be in to do that over and over and, and what it takes in terms of the commitment. And I think for you getting to see that kind of every day, which I mean, you probably don't think of as much, but like you were committed to your academics, to getting mm -hmm. uh, your degree and, and being as good as you are at what you do as a, as a therapist. And you don't think of it as abnormal, just the same as I didn't think of it as abnormal to put in that commitment for my tennis. Um, but for other people to kind of go behind the curtain and see what happens every single day, it takes more than one day to realize the fact that this is a commitment Brian Barker used to say to me all the time, he's like, Hey, your friends can be an accountant. Your friends can be uh, a financial analyst. They can do that five days a week, nine to five. You're an athlete 365 days a year because anything you do can be a setback. And so those are the commitments you make to being an athlete. And that was what I, I, I really loved about it. And it's a finite career. So you make those, you make those choices for the 10 to 15 to 20 years of your career. And, I loved it. I loved that. Uh, I loved that aspect of it. That's awesome. Cause I think you just highlighted the discipline. Cause, uh, I mean, that's definitely something I wanted to talk to you about is just to try to get 
to understand and the level of discipline that you have. And I think just like you said, you're, you're an athlete 365 days a year and you make choices every day with that as the reality. And you want to give everything you have to be the best. It takes that level of discipline and awareness. And it's that, that's what is not easy. <laughs> yeah. And it, it sounds scary, but then once you get into it, I mean, there were so many aspects that I, that I really did enjoy about it. I mean, you were there for so much of it. And, mm -hmm. um, as you're finishing up, like some of the, some of the drills you love doing, some of them you hate doing, but you get those rewards and then you're done. And I mean, that level of tired at the end of a good day, it feels so good. And I, I just, and then you wake up, you're a little sore, but you're ready to get back at it and, and show what you can do again. And for me, it was always a, a matter of feeling like, well, if I'm sore at the end of this day, I'm sore for a reason. That means I put in work. That means I'm going to get better. And that's a good thing. This is what I'm playing for. And this is why I felt so good then when you're standing there holding a trophy or when you're shaking someone's hand and you just won. Hey, I put in the work to earn this. And I think some people, some people don't really, um, I don't know, understand or recognize the gratitude um, and what you should feel when you feel like you've earned something. And that's why I felt so good after every win. It's like, hey, I, I went out there and I did everything I could. I put everything on the line and I won today. And that's, it makes me feel good that I know this wasn't handed to me. None of this was, you know, I didn't just wake up and decide I'm going to be good at tennis. I put in years and years of work. So I feel good about every one of these wins. And um, that's why, I, again, I have no regrets because I did everything I could to earn every one of those wins. I feel really good about every one of those, every one of those losses. Yeah. Maybe I could have done something different, but I don't feel like I need to, you know, I don't feeling like I should have won more matches to me feels greedy because I got everything I could out of my athletic ability. I feel like. Yeah. And I was thinking back to your sophomore year, how you explained that you just really, you know, kind of went after it to see what would happen. And you did sacrifice the academic because that was, mm -hmm. like you said, uh, your dad really emphasized academic. So I'm sure that was not like a light thing. Like that was probably, no, an, no. you know, like an important thing, but you weren't yeah. crystal clear on what it took to be a pro or, and you didn't have a goal. It doesn't sound like of, I want to be number one in the world, but you sure knew, you sure knew the direction to a pro and yeah. you just did, you just went full steam ahead. Yeah. So for me, it was, I didn't have that set ranking goal and I didn't know what the next step was for me. Um, what I knew was that I had reached a point in college tennis where I wasn't getting pushed every day. I didn't have, um, guys in practice pushing me every day. I didn't have even some of the matches. I mean, I probably played, I don't know, 45, 50 matches my sophomore year. I lost maybe three or four times. And out of those 50, I'd say 20 of them. I wasn't probably wasn't that stressed about those matches, not to take anything away from them. They had probably other, um, you know, priorities than tennis. Some of those people I played, but I wasn't getting pushed on a consistent basis to get better. And so I felt like the next step is to get out there with players that are going to push me every day. And those pros sure did that because they beat me up for years before I kind of broke through. And it was that step that I needed to take, but no, I didn't know what, it, what was in store for me. I didn't know, am I going to be top hundred? Am I going to be top 10? Am I going to be 700 in the world and never really make it? I had no idea. So um, but I knew that I wanted to get, to get better, to continue improving. 
I had to make that, I had to take that next step and see where it was going to lead me. Can you talk to me about your style of play? And just for the listeners, like you took balls earlier, were kind of aggressive. Yeah. And I feel like yeah. you, d you figured out your style of play where you felt like you were at your, you know, best chance to, to win and, and be, mm -hmm. you know, the best or one of the very best players in the entire world. Um, so to commit to a certain style, um, yeah. that also I don't think would be easy, but yeah, that's another thing where it's, it's similar to going all in and, and feeling like I had to be committed to something. And also my somewhat love of numbers and statistics and things like that is, um, I figured out Brian and I talked about this so many times about the best way I have to compete and to win the most matches throughout my career. And for me, that was taking time away from the opponent. That was being aggressive, um, using the fact that my hand eye was good. And the fact that I was, I had those kind of fast twitch muscles to be able to attack people early and use my forehand and be aggressive with it. Um, and, I think a lot of people would assume because I, I ran pretty well, my, my footwork was good. My, my movement was pretty good. Um, and people assume, I think it's just like sort of common practice to think, okay, you've got good legs, get way, way back and play defense and run a lot. And you can beat guys that way. And Brian and I tried that and we practiced it and we realized like my skill set isn't built for that. I'm not that great of a defender. Um, so I'm not going to beat guys that are, not going to beat themselves that way. So for me to beat guys that are at the level that I want to get to, I need to be able to attack them. I need to have some way of having a weapon of hurting them. So I need to commit to stepping inside the baseline, stepping up in the court and taking time away from them. And there may be a match here and there that I'll lose because I'm being aggressive and I, maybe I could have beaten that player by, by playing defense once in a while, but I'm not going to win the matches against the top guys against the guys that I want to get to their level by playing that way. I'll never get that way. So for me, it's taking calculated risks is what it feels like for me is, uh, cause a lot of people said, I, you know, commentators or critics would say that I played too risky or too aggressive. And for me, that was a calculated decision to play that aggressive because that was what was, it may not be the, it may not win every single point, but it's going to be put me in the best position to win the most matches throughout my career. Um, and that's the way I felt. And I had to be able to say, to have the confidence and faith in Brian and in myself to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the way I'm going to play. And for every time I lose a match, I know they're going to say, cause that's the other thing about when you lose a tennis match, any commentator, any critic can point to something and say, this is why you lost every match you lose. But you, you know, sometimes that's just not true because there's, you know, there's got to be a loser every single you go out there. So every time there's, there's going to be one. So it's not really fair to, to pick that out, but I understand they have to do their job. But I have to be able to block that out. I have to be able to say, no matter how much they're saying I'm playing too aggressive, no matter how much I go on a four week losing streak, because I'm just not playing well right now to say that, no, I'm still doing this the right way in the long run. This is the best uh, way for me to win the most matches. And I have to be committed to that. And to not really waver, I mean, there were definitely times throughout my career that I wavered a little bit, but to not truly waver from that is what I think helped me have a 14 year career. Um, even when my body at times was failing, um, injuries, illnesses, um, you know, lingering problems uh, and still being able to be successful for that long. I, I don't think it would have happened if I wasn't that committed 
to the mindset and the game style that I had to have to win those matches. Wow. Yeah. I liked how you said the the best way to win the most matches throughout your career. So you, you, you didn't just wing it. You, you <laughs> and Brian, it sounded like really were very thoughtful and clear on what yeah. that formula was. And I mean, you mentioned that you're a bit stubborn in it, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's such a great quality and to be able to, to stick to that and feel like, well, this is my best chance in the long run yeah. to, but to stick to that, the discipline is not easy. It made me think of, you know, for the listeners, James also loves poker and is a great poker player. And I remember, you know, you'd say, well, if I play this way, these, this percentage, like, I feel like I'm in favor over the long run in this game. So <laughs> even if I lose, like you could stay up for hours and just like, <laughs> you, that's just, you'll just endure and push yourself to the limits because you know that, you know, like you mentioned your analytical mind or numbers, uh, you, you just believe and know that this is, you know, this is where I keep doing this is my best chance. At some point it's going to work out for me. Um, yeah. So that's fun I, to, yeah. I do think there's like some correlation there between poker and tennis sometimes. And I think about it when I do play poker uh, nowadays and great might be pushing it. There's a lot of great poker players out there that would probably, uh, probably laugh at, at hearing me be considered a great poker player, but um, <laughs> I, it's adequate. Um, but I do think of the, in those games and yeah, a lot of poker is math and you think of the, the statistics and if you get all your chips in when you're a 60% favorite um, and then you lose that, so many people get so angry, you know, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe I lost that. I just lost a big pot. I lost a lot of, whether it's money or chips or how, whatever you're playing for and mm -hmm. you get frustrated, but then you think about it. I mean, if you think about it rationally, which is one of probably my, my best skill in poker is that I can try to think rationally and not fly off the handle emotionally is that, okay, I got it in as a 60% favorite. That means I did what I'm supposed to do. That's exactly what you want to do in poker. Every, every poker player knows that you want to get your money in when you're the favorite. But if you're a 60% favorite, that means you do it 10 times. You're losing four of those. So you have to be okay with those four times you lose it. And then you turn around and you try to get that situation again. What ends up happening too often with people is that they, lose that pot when they're, when they were 60% favorite. And then they start uh, what they call throwing bad money after good. You start getting it in, getting it in, getting, and you, you start being the, the underdog. You start getting it in when you're a 30% to win, when you're 40% to win, when you're 25% to win, and you're going to lose more and more of those. And that's the pattern you have to change. You have to figure out. So for me playing tennis that way, I could lose a match where I'm playing super aggressive and maybe it was against a guy ranked lower than me. And I just had a bad day. And now for me to say, okay, I'm going to change my game and I'm going to play a little bit more conservative and I'm going to play, um, just patient and stay back and try. Well, now I'm becoming an underdog. I'm no longer a favorite because I was a favorite against that guy playing my style, but I lost, mm -hmm. um, which is, which happens. And now I have to keep coming back. And if I play that guy three weeks, three weeks later, I'm going to play the exact same way with minor adjustments, maybe, maybe exactly where you hit the ball, where you serve, you know, where you hit your first forehand, where you hit your serve, how you're returning little things, but you still have that same general game plan. I'm still going to be that 60% favorite. And now I need to, to win that number of times, but I still have to execute the same way. So 
for me, I always think of it that way. And, mm-hmm. um, that has translated to poker a little bit. And like I said, I still, I mean, I know how much discipline and hard work it took for me to be a tennis player. I've been around great poker players and seeing the discipline and work ethic it takes to be a great poker player. That's why I laugh at being called a great poker player. Cause I know I haven't put in that <laughs> kind of effort, that kind of time, you know, playing a few hours here and there online is not putting in the effort that these guys have. Cause I'm so impressed at the difference in pro poker players and guys that have done this for years and years and years and studied it. Uh, the amount of studying that goes on, that's another thing that would be interesting to kind of go behind the curtain to see the studying that goes on for poker players. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> that's a, well, I just love how you shared the perspective of pulling back. And if you're a 60 cent percent favorite that out of 10 times four, you will lose. So emotionally not to, to go, you know, so off the handle for that. So all those years on the court with Barker as a young kid, <laughs> sorting out the emotions seemed to pay off, but oh, man, we yeah. can also see like, um, I think it's interesting. So you getting to be at the level of mastery, like how we started in tennis, and then you can hear it just you talking about poker. How much do you feel like you achieving and going into such depth of mastery in the realm of ten- tennis to how does it apply to the world now? Cause it seems like you can see in the poker world or you also love golf. I think yeah. maybe you can see, you kind of know of what it takes. Um, is yeah. it difficult to enjoy golf or something no. like that? If you know that you can't put in the, the amount of hours and time to be the very best because you want to win still or this is what I think has changed. This is what I think has changed about me is I can still enjoy golf. I can still enjoy poker. I can still enjoy it and love it knowing that I can never get near that level of mastery. I can enjoy it for the fact I love golf because it's another sports individual that I can get out there. I can go out anytime and go out and practice and hit some balls and hit some putts and get better. Um, I will never have the commitment because nothing in my life will ever be that same priority that tennis was then because tennis was the ability for me to be entirely selfish. Yeah. Having kids makes forces you to be selfless. And so I've gone to putting them first, putting my family first and everything else I can still enjoy and love improving. And in the back of my mind, I know, and I'm still okay with the fact that I will never be able to commit the same way I was able to commit to tennis. And it makes me so thankful. And the reason I have no regrets that I was able to do that at a young age, I was able to be as good as I could possibly be. Um, and then move on in my life to the next, uh, Avenue, which has been my family. And it also gives me an appreciation for people that do master other things, you know, for, to, for, to see and be up close and personal with pro golfers is incredible for me to be up close and personal with pro poker players and hear what they've done and put seeing the work they put in. I can appreciate it. And I always love, I mean, I get to be around social, especially at a poker table. It's very social hearing a bunch of gamblers talk about like, well, if I got this many strokes from this golfer, and if I did this with this pro basketball player, and I love just laughing at them because it's like, they, <laughs> they don't recognize the difference of when someone has committed so much and they have the ability i mean to get to a pro level of basketball golf tennis what we're doing for a career people don't recognize how different it is and how many things have to go right you mean you have to have the physical ability you have to have the strength you have to have the work ethic you have to have the love of the game so many things have to go right 
And so it just makes you that much level better of these people that think like, well, if I, you know, if I just played tennis for like a month, I think I'd, you know, I could, you know, do some sort of a bet and play against you. And I just laugh. I'm like, no, you can't. Like, it's just so different when you're talking about someone that's committed that much. And I know that I've, I can never do that with anything else in my life to that degree, but I'm happy that I was able to do it with one thing. Most people in their lives are never able to do that with one thing. So I've gotten yeah. to, to commit and, um, and be as good as I could possibly be and say, I put my rackets down. I did everything I could that my body allowed me to do that. My mind allowed me to do. And now I've moved on. This is so awesome, Jane. I love, love, uh, <laughs> hearing, I love hearing, you know, just how you see the world and, and just the, uh, your priorities and clarity around the, your priorities and willingness to just go all in. And, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it'll be really beneficial to the listeners because, you know, all of us are different and some of us are pulled more emotionally, some maybe more, uh, rationally. So it's fun to hear how you kind of thought through everything because it makes so much sense. And I, and I love hearing, <laughs> all the gratitude and appreciation you have and you're able to switch back and forth between, you know, maybe that 60% favorite or you, you know, you may be more like 80, 90% favorite in the tennis world, <laughs> but for you to know that, okay, well now I'm the, now I'm going to lose nine out of 10 or eight out of 10 times on the poker table. And I'm okay. Cause I understand what that is, you know? Well, I, mean, uh, I try to, I, I, I find that, you know, one big thing about poker is finding the people you're playing against. So if I play against other players that aren't very good, then I can still win hopefully 60% of the time, as opposed to <laughs> I'm not playing those pros that I sit next to. I sit next to them and watch them. I don't play with them because I, I, then I would lose 90% of the time and I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> so, <nice. laughs> so you still like to win. <laughs> I still like to win. I don't get me wrong. I don't, I, I'm not the same. That's why I think I've changed is I don't feel like I absolutely, absolutely need to win. Like I did throughout tennis throughout my, my childhood, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, that's never going to change. I still love to win. <laughs> <laughs> that's so oh, awesome. Man. All right, James. All right. Uh, thank you so much, sir. Rory, Appreciate love it. talking to you. Awesome. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a five-star review. Every listener matters to us, so please leave your comments along the way to let us know how we're doing. Until next time, wishing you all the wealth, health, and happiness in the world.